Welcome to the Jason Tim Podcast. Thank you guys so much for taking time out of your day to come hang out and talk some hoops with Tommy and I. Tommy, how you doing, man? Uh, fantastic, man. Uh, coming off a nice little weekend where I did some hiking, did some working out, really positive stuff all around. I think I mentioned uh, a while back that I'm doing like a little sober month, so I'm feeling really good. My uh, my brain feels all refreshed on Mondays instead of uh, hungover. So. <laughs> <laughs> just just cu- coming through a, like a, a, a life-altering experience at the beginning of each year where you're just connected to nature and just in, uh, just all wrapped up in health. I like that, dude. I can't – it's impossible for me because in, inevitably every spring – my family ends up going on a couple of ski trips and, uh, uh, and you know, uh, my family in particular, I don't like to do this too much, but they like to drink on the slopes, which I think is absolutely crazy because like it stresses me out enough, the risk of getting hurt on skis and adding alcohol to that mix is just like deeply unsettling. Um, but anyway, I am excited to announce that I don't plan on going out of town for a while, which means it'll be a little bit easier for you and I to get into somewhat of a rhythm um, and, uh, to get a little bit better about consistently talking in the same stretch of the week so that we can get in a, in a habit, uh, tonight we're going to do our, or today we are going to do our MVP rankings through one fourth of the season. Tommy and I were talking and we really wanted to touch on, uh, uh, some specific teams. We wanted to touch on Utah. We wanted to touch on Denver and we wanted to touch on Brooklyn after, after the James Harden trade. And I thought this would be a cool way to do that because, first of all, it's a fourth of the way through the season. And when you really are looking at MVP rankings, you got to remember all these chunks of the season because they all kind of add up to that that case at the end of the year that ends up being, you know, uh, who ends up winning the award. And then also it gives us a great chance to kind of branch off and and talk about those teams. Um, uh, What we will uh, not be doing today is talking about some crazy chick sitting courtside at a uh, at an Atlanta Hawks game, because I feel like there's plenty of that talk to be had out there. And honestly, man, like, I don't even know what to say. If I can say one thing about that, it has nothing to do with the fan herself or LeBron fan interaction at games is normal. I think it's expected, but my thing would be, why are there fans sitting courtside? We are, I thought that was really weird too. We are less than 10 days out from Seku Smith, one of the NBA's biggest broadcasters passing away from COVID complications, but we're having fans at games. Just the way that that silver and the NBA are treating this after going the whole woke route and, you know, saying that black lives matter. And then they're turning around and doing the total opposite. They're treating the NBA, how Trump treated COVID. They're saying, Oh, it's kind of a state's rights thing. If you want to have fans in your arena, we can't stop you. It just feels very, very hypocritical from the position that they've taken over the summer to where they are now, where they've claimed to be, oh, we're this big moral upstanding league compared to the NFL and MLB, and yet they look exactly like those leagues. Now, I'm not blaming the NBA for being a business. At the end of the day, that's their job. What I am blaming is the hypocritical nature of the stances they have taken and now what they're doing. Because what they're doing, they are not saying that black lives matter because they're putting black lives at risk every single day. So I I just wanted to hit that real quick and get that out there. I'm not, I don't want to go into the LeBron thing with the fan at all. I just want to get it out there that the NBA looks incredibly hypocritical right now, especially from the stances they took over the summer with a lot of their, their um, social positions and specifically silver. He just, he gets on my nerves a lot because he tries to be the moral standard of commissioners in sports. And he really isn't that guy. At the end of the day, he's worried about the bottom line as he should be, but he shouldn't act like he's concerned about other things when he's really not. Well, for starters, uh, (laughs) I don't necessarily care about them uh, uh, having fans way up in the nosebleeds because they can space them out, you know, 10 chairs from each other and they can 
do. And they're so far away from the court that it's not even conceivable that they could uh, cause a problem. But I, d- I remember thinking the exact same thing. Like as the altercation was happening, I'm like, whoa, they look really close to the players. <laughs> you know, and like and my, my thing was is like like I, where I would be upset is if, if I was the Lakers, I would be upset that this lady was pulling off her mask and arguing, you know, 15 feet or so away from LeBron, even though it's technically outside of six feet, because it's like, it's all fun and games for the lady. She gets kicked out. She gets to go be a star, but LeBron, like if he gets it, he's out for two weeks and it could literally turn around the, the, the fortunes of the team for that season. So yeah, that was, that I thought was really weird as for like the, what you brought up about the, the whole, you know, moral posturing, you know, I think that, I, th- I think that one of the biggest lessons that I've learned in my adult life is that there's a huge, I mean, it's cliche, but there's a huge difference between actions and, and words. It's, it's, the, it's the reality of the situation. Like you will always meet people in the business world. You'll meet people in, when you're trying to build relationships. You'll meet people when you're watching movies or when you're watching sports. They're always going to tell you something about who they are. And, and this is a huge deal in politics and it drives me insane. But the, that just doesn't mean anything to me. It doesn't, it doesn't matter to me that you pat someone's back on Twitter. It doesn't matter that you take some big you know, moral stand on Twitter. It doesn't matter to me that you say something in an interview on the news or anything along those lines. That's all posturing to me. The only thing that, that defines you as a human being is what you do. Uh, and, and quite frankly, like I just, I'm, I'm, I'm over that. And, and I don't care. And the other side of that is like, I also don't care that the NBA is hypocritical and, and that they're a big business who only has their own best interests at heart because they're the NBA. They're, they're a professional sports organization. I don't wake up in the morning and think about like, you know, oh man, like I'm, I'm really hoping the NBA does nice things today. Like, I don't care. That's not what they are to me. It's like, it's like caring what, what type of human being conor mcgregor is it's like the dude is literally like trained to beat other human beings to a pulp he's probably not going to be the most upstanding citizen you've met so i think i think people need to delineate between those two things and pay closer attention to the people that are actually in your life and the things they do rather than the things they say and who cares about any of that other stuff honestly yeah it's just the opposite or the the contrast between the actions and the words that bother me Right. Like, like kind of like you're pointing to the NBA says, says one thing, but they do another. If they just want to act like a business, fine. That's why people love the NFL at the end of the day, because the NFL doesn't try to parade around and say something that they're not. At the end of the day, they are a business and they operate as a business. They're always concerned about the bottom line as they should be. And I think the NBA, the people would look at the NBA in a better light if they just acted like that. If they just said, look, we have to do what's best for the NBA and we're always going to do that. Yeah, I, I hear you. And and like the latest incident has been this this all star game thing, and and people are upset about that. And and what I would respond to that is like, uh, are you surprised? Like it, it, this whole point of doing this season uh, was to try to find the safest way possible within uh, within the 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 goal, the ultimate goal, which was to fulfill as much of the TV contract as possible. It was very important to the players that they got the chance to play in the Olympics because of all the, the, the international guys that feel very loyal to their country. It was very important to the players that they salvage the CBA and make as much money as possible. It was very important for the owners in the exact same respect. So it was, they made a decision to start playing basketball from December to July. And as part of that goal, they wanted to fulfill 
to the best of their ability, their TV obligations, which included 72 regular season games. And as part of their TNT contract, they probably found out that they could make a great deal of cash if they played the all-star game. And so what I would say is like, at, at least they're testing three times a day and they're doing these PCR tests before the game and they're doing at least as much as they can. Uh, but like, I, I'm, what I'm saying is like, if you're going to complain about what the NBA is doing in terms of going through the season and playing the all-star game, you're kind of like crying into the wilderness because they don't care. The owners don't care and the players don't care. And, and, and you're not, you're not viewing them. They're not the, you know, the moral arbiters of society. They're literally just a professional sports organization. And so we need to stop holding them to the standard of like, you know, someone who's in a real position of moral authority in society, if that makes sense. And I'm 100% with that. I think they should be doing all the things that they're currently doing to have the season go on. I just don't want them to act like they're not going to and then go and do it. That's the mm-hmm. only part that bothers me, right? Yeah, well, and that's the, the nature of it. That's yeah. the hypocrisy. And exactly. And, and like, and that, that's the thing. Like, I know that's, that's been the big joke the last couple of days with the, uh, uh, with the stuff with uh, the stimulus checks and the Democrats and all that crap. It's like, it's like, well, dude, like this has literally been the way this entire business has been the right and the left for my entire lifetime and for centuries before that. So like, stop trying to like, everyone does this. Every single business that I've ever known goes about a PR campaign in an attempt to try to portray some sort of uh, uh, humanity, but you got to forget about that. Those guys are about dollars and cents. They don't care about anything else. And that even goes down to, to smaller businesses. That's just the nature of the, of the, uh, the same goes for me and my family and every other family. Like when push comes to su- shove, I'm going to look out for my wife and I. Now, if we come into some great deal of wealth and we have an opportunity to, to, to donate and to do kind things for the great, for the rest of society. Sure. But I sure, sure as hell am not wealthy yet. And where I am right now, like I'm looking out for our interests. And I, I'm, I would much rather to your to your point, I'd much rather people just be honest and say that like, hey, we're looking out for our interests right now. You know, <laughs> you know that's, that, all, that's literally all I'm asking. Just be <laughs> honest about what you're doing, because we can all see it. We're not dumb. People aren't dumb. They, they can see right through BS for the most part. So that's my exactly. only point. Let's talk some basketball. So Let's we're going to, we're going to, uh, we're going to, uh, go through the MVP rankings. We're going to start with number one, where I think you and I are going to probably disagree. So to be clear, I, I said in a pod last week that I thought Joel Embiid was the MVP. But as I was digging into the numbers and as Joel sat out yet another game the other night, I've actually changed it to LeBron. Now, for starters, I am a LeBron fan. I should uh, disclose my bias here. However, I also think I'm right. I think LeBron is the MVP. And the reason is, is very simple. So for starters, for each of these players, I'm going to read out their per 36 stats, their shooting percentages, and I'm going to read their, their net rating on and off. I'm going to do that for all the players just to kind of to put some context on what we're talking about. So LeBron is 27, 8, and 8 per 36 minutes. He's shooting 49% from the field, 41% from three, 72% from the line. The Lakers are plus 11.3 when he's on the court and minus 1.4 when he's off the court. The Lakers are a half game out of the best record in the league, and they currently are tied for the second best net rating in the league. The reason why I would pick LeBron number one, and I'm interested to hear your thoughts on this because I would imagine you disagree is for starters, he's been excellent on the defensive end of the floor, even better than he was last year, and it has led the Lakers to having the best defense in the NBA. Availability, he has played every single minute 
uh, or not minute, every single game this season, he's been uh, uh, available in a way that we didn't expect him to considering the backstory coming into the season. So that's what I put as my third uh, item on my list was circumstances. This was a team that came off a 72 game or 70, 72 day post off season and had just won a title. There was every reason in the world for them to slip and to come into the season not trying, and he didn't let them. He is the reason. His effort and focus to start the season is the reason the Lakers are off to a hot start. And last but not least, he's got that playoff pedigree. He's got the 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 background that legitimizes his regular season success in a lot of ways that, you know, say Giannis doesn't have or a James Harden doesn't have. So uh, am I crazy? Where, where do you land on having LeBron number one at MVP? So I don't think you're crazy. LeBron has been better than I expected this season, everything considered. I thought he would probably struggle offensively relative to his standards to begin the season, specifically with his shooting. And it's actually been the opposite. Um, He is probably having, um, all things considered, the best shooting season of his career. Even better than that season in Miami when he shot around 40% from three because of the volume and his willingness to take threes. Um, he, he has never looked as confident in his three ball. And I thought, I think maybe some of that is kind of that post championship glow where he's coming off that championship. He feels as confident as ever. And he looks as confident as ever. His control and mastery of the game at this point is something that very few players, I think in the history of basketball ever have touched. He has been phenomenal this year. And, and I can't sit here and say, you're crazy for picking him MVP. I don't agree. I haven't been one at this point um, just because the Sixers literally just won their first basketball game of the season without him yesterday, or it might have been two days ago against the Pacers. But either way, I think it comes down to how you define MVP, right? LeBron is having a magnificent season, but that Lakers team is really good and really deep, and he's playing with another top six, seven player, and AD hasn't been that guy so far this year, but the talent is still there, and the reputation is still there, which means other teams have to account for that. And beat on the other hand, doesn't have as much help, even though they have improved that roster. He's been probably a top three defensive player of the year candidate, and they don't win games without him. So if we're going by the definition of who is the most valuable to their team, I think it's Embiid. Um, LeBron's case would be built on, a, obviously, he's looked amazing, and then, like you're saying, availability. So no, I don't think you're crazy. I would just go Embiid at this point. But if he does continue to miss games, I think the, the conversation will continue to shift towards LeBron. So and real, quick, is. real quick, let's let's read off Embiid's numbers. So he's he's 32, 13, and 3 per 36. That's incredible. 54% from the field, 40% from three, 84% from the line. The Sixers are plus 13.2 per 100 possessions when he's on the floor and minus 4.1 when he's off the floor. Um, but he's missed four of their last 12 games. Um, uh, he's only played in 16 games this season compared to 22 for LeBron at a certain point to me, that is a factor in the MVP race. I mean, he's missed a third of their last 12 games. That's pretty crazy. And to, to your point, he's so good that they, they, they have really, they have a lot of trouble winning when he's not playing. And my, my question would just be, how do you factor that into an MVP race? Uh, you know, considering, you know, availability is the best ability as you know, that cliche goes. Right. So his net rating swing is ridiculous. I think that'd be probably the number one thing I point to besides the per 36 numbers, which are just outrageous. Um, I'm not concerned about the availability stuff yet. If, you know, if we get 60 games into the season and he's only played 40, then yeah, it's absolutely going to factor in. But as the season goes, if he stays healthy, he's only going to have missed six, seven, eight games. 
So I don't think that'll be enough missed time to really factor it into the MVP race. I think you would have to play less than 60 games for me to truly factor that in and say, okay, now he might have been amazing for those 58 or so games, but LeBron played 71 of 72 games, so he would deserve it over Embiid. Um, so at this point, I still have Embiid. If he does continue to miss more games, I think LeBron will probably overtake him, even though Jokic is, is coming hard, who I'm sure we'll touch on very soon here. Yeah, and like the – it's all part, like we talked about at the beginning, there's these chunks of the season. And so there's a story of each chunk. Like if you look last year, you know, the, the first chunk of the season, LeBron was right there, you know, in the, in the hunt with Giannis. And then there was this like chunk in the middle of the season, like where the Lakers went in a little bit of a slump. They lost like four games in a row. Giannis was putting up crazy numbers and the Bucks were winning every game. And he was like very, very available. He was playing almost every night. But then there was like this fourth chunk of their third chunk of the season before the season got suspended where all of a sudden LeBron looked better. And you kind of build this this picture. And all I'm saying is that in this first chunk of the season, Embiid's availability has been a problem. So obviously, if that projects to continue that way and he misses you know, five games each chunk of the season, then he's going to miss 20 games. And then we're, and then we're talking about a, a serious uh, problem for his MVP case. And, and I, I've, you know, one of two things is going to happen with LeBron, either he's going to go full 2018 where he just plays every single night, or he's going to go through a stretch where he's having a nagging injury and he ends up, you know, uh, taking his foot off the gas. And that'll all end up being part of the, uh, part of the story down the line. Um, <clears throat> the other thing, I, with him, but go ahead. I think, the thing with the different chunks of your of the season as you're laying out is we always act like these things are decided so early, right? Everybody on Twitter saying, oh, it's a done deal. LeBron's already going to win. The narrative's behind him, this and that. But we saw last year that it literally changed three times, right? I, I think we jumped to conclusions and everybody wants to get mad about, a, about the swirling narrative, but we just got to let these things play out. I would, like I'm saying, I would still lean in B because that net rating swing is absolutely nuts and they can't really win games without him. Whereas I think... And this is obviously just a theory because LeBron hasn't missed time. I think the Lakers would be okay without LeBron. They wouldn't be amazing without him, but I think they'd still be a solid team. Whereas Philly looks almost lost when Embiid isn't on the floor. Well, I, 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 I do disagree with you in the sense that I, do, I think Philly's roster is extremely talented. I think Tobias Harris as the third best player on the, the Sixers is a much better player than the third best player on the Lakers, which is Dennis Schroeder. Tobias is having an amazing season, by the way. He's basically been a Chris Middleton. So imagine if Chris Middleton was the third best player on his team. Uh, in addition to that, like, you know, guys like, guys like Seth Curry are, are, are playing extremely well this season. You know, uh, 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 Tyrese Maxey's having a really good season. The Shake Milton's actually been playing really well. He killed the Lakers uh, the other night. The, the the team has a lot of talent. I think I think that the the difference is is LeBron has been so available that we haven't had a chance to see how the Lakers look when he doesn't play. And uh, for the record, there was this really weird stat that I kept you know uh, beating the drum with when uh, when the, when I was talking about having Schroeder in the starting lineup. The Lakers are killing teams when LeBron, AD, and Schroeder are on the floor. They're killing teams when LeBron and AD are on the floor. They're killing teams when LeBron and Schroeder are on the floor. They're barely positive when it's just LeBron. And when it's AD and Schroeder, they're still negative in just the minutes that AD and Schroeder are on the floor. So there's some weird stuff going on there where, and it was like this last year too. And honestly, I think it just goes to the stuff you and I talk about all the time about like primary initiators. I just think that Anthony Davis is a very, 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 very good basketball player, but he's like a Lamborghini without a key fob. 
Like somebody's got to bring the key fob to get him going. You know what I mean? Yep. I, I don't disagree with any of that. I have Philly winning the East. I still have Philly winning the East. So I do agree with the overall talent, but it just, for whatever reason, it hasn't worked without Embiid. There's a reason they only have one win without him, right? As good as Tobias has been, if he all of a sudden has to be your second best guy and that second best guy is to Ben Simmons, who has a, an absurd aversion to scoring at this point, I, I think it bad. looks a he hasn't uh, been on great. offense. He's been yeah. bad on offense. Sure. He, he's regressed there. It's one of those things where the skill hasn't improved. And now he kind of feels the pressure of that skill not improving because he hears the chatter. And he's so afraid to try and even score around the rim sometimes at this point that it doesn't make sense because he should be, he should still be, regardless of what the shooting looks like, he should still be one of the best rim attackers in the game. And that's like a, a night to night thing at this point. You don't know what Ben Simmons you're going to get in terms of attacking the rim. So. I haven't beat, especially if he continues to play games. He's been absolutely incredible. Um, I feel like an absolute idiot for not having him in my top 10 before the season started because he's easily been. He, he, he's a lot better now than he was. Like He, he is. He, he put up monster numbers in that first round playoff series, but he was bad for the most part. He didn't play anywhere near as well on defense as he usually does. And he was about as... Like he was facing double teams almost time down the floor, almost every time down the floor. And I think he only averaged one assist per game in that series. So like he just, he wasn't very, very good. And now as far as Embiid as a player, you know, I was real, I've watched him quite a few times over the last uh, couple of weeks. He still, the one downside with him and the one thing that makes me nervous, not for a, a, not for a Brooklyn series, but more like if he ends up in some dog fight with Boston or Miami, or if he ends up in the finals against the Lakers, he still struggles with the double team in terms of making complicated reads. He can make simple reads against defenses that make catastrophic mistakes. So, for instance, you know, uh, uh, a poorly spaced on defense, not in a good shell drill leading into a double team where a guy is just completely wide open under the basket or completely wide open on the wing. He can make that kind of read but he's struggling with the same reads that Anthony Davis had been struggling with, although he's been getting a little better this year where it's like embracing the double team, taking it a little bit further into the double team deliberately to really get that defense off balance, to make the more complicated reads that the only like that you can only find against the really good defenses. Like when you're playing a really good defense, you're not going to get the the butt naked guy under the basket or in the corner. You're, you're going to have to make, the, the the difficult, complicated read to get a slightly contested shot, but that in a playoff series is a high-quality shot, if that makes sense. Absolutely, and I think handling double teams is an experience thing. The more you do it, the better you're going to get at it, probably, as long as you can process the game quickly enough. Uh, one of the best things a coach ever told me was to play slow in a crowd, right? The tendency for a lot of guys is when they get double teamed, they speed up and they hurry and they instantly try to find something because they're nervous about getting double teamed. What Embiid needs to learn how to do is when that double comes, like you're saying, invite it, embrace it. He's taller than almost anybody who's coming to double him. Embrace that double team, play patient, play strong, and then find your kickouts. What I think they can do is they have done is they've put some more shooting around him, obviously with Curry and Danny Green hasn't been good this year, but at least he's a theoretical shooter. And Tobias is shooting the eyes out of it. He's shooting incredible this year. I think what they need to do is, is have more, guys who can make that secondary read, right? Like Simmons can make the secondary read if, if Embiid hits him out of a double team. They need to find another guy kind of in that Simmons mold and like a Draymond Green mold or an Andre Iguodala mold where they can make that second and third read. If Embiid's only going to make the simple one, you got to have the guy that can make that second or third read to find the open shooter to find the layup. So 
that would be the type of guy, if I'm them, that I'm looking for near a trade deadline, at a buyout, somebody who can make those secondary passing reads that will amplify their offense. Because right now I want to say they're 11th or 12th in offensive rating, which is good, but that might be a problem come playoff time. Um, So I'd be looking for somebody like that over the trade deadline. Yeah, I 100% agree with you. And for the record, a lot of those offensive metrics are thrown off by the fact that Embiid's been out so much. Um, But yeah, it's funny you brought up that thing when you were were coaching. I remember my coach at uh, Arizona Christian University did what was called the tight-spaced passing drill. And I'm not sure if you've ever seen this, but basically you go stand on the uh, in the corner and you you kind of make a theoretical box that stretches from the from the block over to the out of bounds line. So it's it's roughly like ten feet wide by like fifteen feet long. So it's a little it's a small box. And then you play uh, you put three uh, three offensive players and two defensive players. But then you encourage the defensive players to be physical and to foul. And basically the idea is you can't dribble, but you have to complete passes within the circle. But there's always an open man but you're getting absolutely hounded because you can't dribble and the defensive players just up in your grill and being extremely physical. And it forces you to be really strong, clear space with your elbows to get, to get to a, a, a bounce pass. And you almost always have to throw a pass fake to get the one guy to jolt to the other guy So the, the third player is open. And uh, uh, it was funny because like, if you actually embraced the physicality and embraced the pass faking and embraced the, the guy who's all over you, it was, an, it was an easy drill to succeed in. But if you got sloppy, it, it, it was turnover city, even though you only had two defenders involved. And I think that's, the, that's kind of the way I look at it with Embiid and uh, with Anthony Davis as well. It's just <clears throat> really just kind of embracing the fact that the defense is playing into your hands and, and being patient with it. But yeah, I was kind of disappointed late fourth quarter of that Lakers-Philly game. When uh, uh, when the Lakers actually kind of shifted their defense to have Anthony Davis straight up on Embiid, and then they had uh, Dennis Schroeder kind of get into like a uh, 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 in a dig position where he's kind of lunging in at the ball on Embiid, and then they had KCP uh, kind of split the difference between the two shooters, and it's one of those plays where if Embiid was strong with the ball and took one dribble into the paint he would force Dennis to commit, which would force KCP to make a decision. But instead, like he was hesitant and he, and he, and he was uh, just immediately would kind of like dribble away from where the, the, the dig was coming from so he could get to his jump shot. And that to me is like looking solely for your shot in that situation instead of understanding that the defense is compromising itself to try to stop you and that there's some sort of opening there. Uh, and he, he's probably not taking that dribble into the paint because he doesn't feel confident in his ability to really read the double team and make a sure. play quickly out of it and strongly. But mm-hmm. it's funny you mentioned the tight space passing drill. We actually did that same drill at Fresno City. Um, same coach that told me, you know, play slow in a crowd, play low and slow in a crowd. That, yeah, lot, spent a lot of days in the tight space passing drill. My, uh, what, my college roommate at Fresno City, his dad was actually the creator of that drill, Mike Dunlap, uh, coach really? at Metro State. Yep, yep, coach at Metro State, coach the Charlotte Bobcats, um, coach at LMU for a little bit. He's been all over. He was the interim coach at, uh, at U of A, uh, Arizona, when uh, – who was it that got Wait, What's his name one more time? Mike Dunlap. Mike Dunlap was an interim yep. coach at the U of A. I'm trying to remember because there mm-hmm. were two interim coaches between yep. between uh, uh, Lou Dolson and, and uh, Sean Miller, and it was yep. – Dunlap, and then there was one other guy, and I can't remember who it was. That's crazy. Yeah. That, that's funny, though. But yeah, yeah it, it, the drill, the drill was was genius, and it, it's an it's it's an example of just uh, 
uh, the, like when you're a college, when you're a player, you don't really understand. You're like, okay, can we just play some five on five? Like, what are we doing here? But stupid stuff like that forces you to simplify what you're working on down to a specific skill, which in this case was like being strong with the ball. And you could tell like the, 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 the big part of it too, is like, it's okay to risk a turnover to potentially develop an assist, mm-hmm. you know, like for instance, if you just if you get double teamed and you just kick it out one pass away to the entry pass guy and then he lunges back out, you didn't risk a turnover, but you also didn't make the defense pay. You basically just forced the play to reset. Now, if you take an aggressive dribble into the double team and then drop it off under the basket, there's a chance it might get tipped out of bounds. There's a chance you might miss the guy. There's a chance you might mishandle the ball. If you make a more aggressive play to a kick out three, same thing. But if you complete the pass it's a wide open layup or a wide open three. So you're, it's a risk reward factor there. And I've just, uh, and be, uh, Anthony Davis is starting to embrace that a little bit. He had two turnovers in the first half last night against Atlanta, where he was aggressively trying to make a play. I just would like to see Embiid make that type of play. That's the next step for him. That's the kind of thing that's going to turn him into a player that can really become a, a guy who goes toe to toe with uh you know, a LeBron or a Kawhi and, or a Kevin Durant in a playoff series and, and come out on top is when they when they do start to figure out how to double team him in game five or six of a playoff series. How is he going to to make teams pay for that? You know what and I mean? for what it's worth, I think he's close. He's he's 26. Most guys really don't hit their prime till 26, 27, 28. I think he has not only the, ab- the ability, but the kind of the mental processing of the game capacity to actually become that guy. I mean, he's been showing passing flashes since his time at Kansas when he, would, he barely even knew how to play the game. He has pretty tremendous feel for a guy his size. If I had to bet on it, I would bet on him figuring that stuff out probably sooner rather than later. Mm-hmm. I agree with you. And, uh, and I, th- I think it was important to go over that because like Embiid is making a leap. He's going from guy in that six to 15 range of, you know, superstars that's constantly fluctuating up and down based on how they're playing week to week, you know, like Damian Lillard, like one week, you think he's the seventh best player in the world. And the next week you think he's the 13th. And the same thing goes for, uh, you know, Jokic sometimes the same thing goes for Embiid and, and uh, uh, both Jokic and Embiid this season appear to be making that leap into that like consistent top five level performer. And uh, this is where you get nitpicky with them because, you know, the, the, those little things, little details like we talked about, about how he handles the double team and, and uh, uh, what he does with the double team rather than just making the safe play. Those are the kinds of things that separate you from being the fourth best player in the world and the eighth best player in the world. Like those little details make a huge difference. Who did you, uh, who'd you have at number three on your list? I would have Jokic, um, and I could even see the case for Jokic top two. He has been – he, to me, the only guys offensively, if I'm running an entire offense and I'm taking over him, are LeBron and Steph, right? I, and that is not – people are going to get mad at me because they're going to think it's Kevin Durant's lander. It's not. Durant is clearly better at him than him at the skill of scoring, but Jokic is probably already the best over 6'10", 6'11", passer in the history of basketball. He's a point guard. But he's just 6'11", and he weighs 280 pounds. He's bananas good. Like Every time I watch the guy, it's despite the fact that they can't guard anybody, they are one of the most fun basketball teams I've ever watched simply because of Jokic. He makes everything go for them. They really don't have like another even top 30 or top 40 player on that roster. And then they sacrificed defense this summer for whatever reason. They got rid of their two best wing defenders. And somehow they're still figuring it out because he's that special offensively. 
he is read, read his stats because I want to hear him. The dude is absolutely nuts. Well, first of all, Jeremy Grant uh, has been uh, so so good this year. That's got to be frustrating if you're yep. Denver, especially if the intel that they offered him the same contract is true. Then that's really frustrating. So uh, I had Jokic fourth for the record, but I'm going to read his stats before we go back and forth. So Jokic was 27, 12, and nine per 36. 57% from the field, 38% from three, 84% from the line. The Nuggets are plus 7.1 when he's on the floor and plus 0.5 when he's off the floor. They, they uh, uh, have had a rough season. I think they're 12 and eight, um, but they're quietly up to the sixth best record in the league right now. Um, uh, and they are 11 and four in their last 15 games because they started one and four. And uh, they're in that 15 game stretch, they're ninth in defense, which is pretty good, especially considering Jokic has been better. I think he's leading all centers in steals, which is awesome. Um, uh, and then he's uh, fourth in the uh, fourth. The, the Nuggets had the fourth best offensive rating over the last 15 games. So the Nuggets are playing significantly better. They're top 10 in both offense and defense. Uh, Jokic's numbers have been amazing. I agree with you that he's the candidate on this list that is your bona fide number one without a without a number two that's near his level if you go through every other guy that we're going to talk about today they're playing alongside someone who's considered that type of elite but a big part of that has to do with how poorly uh uh, jamal murray's been playing um and he he's had his moments he's hit a couple of big shots this year he just hasn't been bubble jamal but i i am maintaining that i want to wait you know, till right around this point in the season to start closely judging some of these teams that made it into the late rounds of the playoffs. I'm with you there. Um, I was a pretty harsh Jamal critic, even during the bubble or not. I, w- I shouldn't say critic. I was just skeptical of how real those performances were in the bubble. And I think we're at least seeing that that's probably not the guy he's going to be. Cause like I've said before, if he actually was that guy, he'd be the greatest point guard in NBA history because he was scoring 30 points a game on 50, 50, 90 splits. So the potential is there with Murray. He just, it's the, it's always been the consistency with him. I think the consistency of routine in the bubble really helped him, right? He was able to do the same thing every day. He's in the same gym, a guy like him, who is a super rhythm player. I think that really helped him. Um, But yeah, I, I, I don't have enough superlatives to describe Jokic. I think he's been, but I have him third for a reason. He's been better than everybody not named, LeBron or Embiid and I if his defense wasn't what it was or what it is relative to LeBron and Embiid who are two of probably the best defensive players in the league when they want to be and they both have wanted to be this year I would have him probably number one but I think that there's a big enough gap in the defense especially if you're comparing Embiid and Jokic where Embiid's you know a a defensive player of the year candidate that I think you have to put both of those guys over him for now but if if they keep playing better and if you said they've been like 10th in defensive rating over the past uh, 10 or so games of rating through the last 15 games yeah there you go so if if they can maintain that and then the offense is what it is which is top three offense basically then I think he's going to continue to build a really strong case especially if they vault up to third or fourth in the west which I think is distinctly possible the west is an absolute dogfight this year. I was looking at the standings last night and I, I still think like 13 of the 15 teams have a chance to make the playoffs. The only ones that I say don't are Minnesota and probably new Orleans. Those are the only two that I would totally count out at this point. There's obviously some teams that are probably on the outside looking in, but those two are the only ones that I would eliminate right now and say they probably have no chance of making the playoffs.
playoffs. The fourth best team in the league, or the fifth best team in the league right now, uh, is uh, Denver and Milwaukee tied for fifth at 12 and eight. So there's only four teams that have fewer than eight losses right now. So I, and even all four of those are all bun, uh, like jumbled up right around that 16 and five, 15 and five, 16 and six, right around that line. Um, but I agree with you. So the reason why I had Kawhi third instead of, of Jokic is flat out because of the, of the team success. So Kawhi, um, for starters, Kawhi has been averaging 27, six and six per 36. He's shooting 51% from the field, 41% from three and 92% from the line. So like well above uh, like a healthy 50, 40, 90 season. The Clippers are plus 16.2 when he's on the floor and minus 2.9 when he's off the floor. The only two reasons I have him uh, below LeBron and Embiid are, um, uh, first of all, defensively, he's taken a slip. The the Clippers have uh, been outside of the top 10 all season. I believe they're 12th right now. Um, they haven't defended nearly as well as you would expect them to for the amount of talent that they have. The two guys in front of him on this list uh, for both of us, Embiid and LeBron, have both taken the defensive end uh, way more personally this year and have attacked the season more on that end. Uh, the other thing to me was the offensive workload. So, you know, LeBron's offensive workload is less than it was last year, for sure. But his offensive workload is still super high especially when you factor in the fact that Anthony Davis has basically like, like put his car in neutral to start the season. So, uh, but, but seriously though, like he, you know, this should be a year where LeBron's coasting more offensively, but he, but he's had to take on that crazy, you know, uh, intensive offensive role. And then the same goes for Joel Embiid. Like his usage rate is up over 32. He's one of the, uh, um, uh, almost every possession runs through him in some way, shape or form. Uh, even when he ends up uh, giving the ball up out of double teams, a lot of guys are creating offense off of it, the attention he gets. Kawhi may or may not be the best player on his team right now uh, because of how good Paul George has been. And uh, th- we're all splitting hairs between these guys. I'm not trying to say that there's some massive gap between Kawhi and the top guys, but he has a case to be up there. Uh, and the reason why I have him third is because his defensive slippage and because of his much smaller offensive workload playing alongside Paul George. What's the case for him over Jokic then? Team success. They have the best record. Purely team success. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the Clippers literally have the best record in the league right now. Yeah. And, and Denver's 12 and eight. So to me, that would be the, the, the bona fide MVP case, best player on the best team. uh, Fair enough. From there. Yeah. I, I mean, I, just from that standpoint, I can't argue with it, obviously. I just think Kawhi was pretty rough to start the season offensively. He's obviously been tremendous since. He's shooting like 56% from the floor since the first five or so games. Um, so it's that's obviously a lesser por- portion of the season than what he's done since. Uh, but he also hasn't been as available as uh, Jokic or um, LeBron. So, yeah, I mean, I like you said, we're splitting hairs here. Um, I would personally go Jokic, then Kawhi, then Kawhi, and then – but I see – the argument from the other side too. Yeah. And like the, there's a lot to be said about how the Clippers just look more calm this year. Um, they, they uh, are, are making better decisions. The Nicholas Batum and uh, Serge Ibaka signings have undeniably raised their offensive IQ. 
I don't think enough. Uh, so they've raised their their offensive IQ in terms of making plays in closeout situations. So, for instance, like, you know, Batum catching the ball in the corner, knocking down open shots or attacking that closeout, and then Ibaka on the short roll and in, in uh, post-up situations, higher IQ. But those are not primary initiations. All of their primary initiations are still uh, centered around Kawhi and Paul George. They've done good this year with the exception of a handful of bad games, which no team has avoided. Uh, however, I, I don't see the core playoff problem, which is inferior uh, primary initiations. Uh, be, uh, I don't see that problem as having been fixed. Uh, they're definitely better than last year. Um, like I said, I, I didn't say anything about the Batum signing, but I had a, I, I am a big believer in in – like relatively young veterans so guys who are in their early thirties who have been stuck on bad teams suddenly being good. Like think of Trevor Ariza when he went to Houston as an example. Um, like these, these guys, they're just, they're, they're playing alongside crap perimeter initiators and they're on, on and they're not motivated. And now they get put in a situation where they're making uh, plays and closeout situations alongside some of the best players in the league. And they're, they have something to play for. It was it, to me, it was predictable that a guy like Batum would break out. Kent Bazemore was terrible in Atlanta this year. He looks great with Golden State. I mean, that that's the argument that's right point. there. Yeah now, yeah, now he's next to to Steph and to a lesser extent Draymond, but mostly Steph. And he's shooting over forty percent from three. He looks really good in basically all of his minutes. He gets a little bit out of control sometimes, but at the end of the day, he's a role player. But Batum's the same thing. Batum's looked really good, and I mean, people thought his career might have been over that last year in Charlotte, but he just wasn't motivated. And mm-hmm. funny enough, he probably would have had really a lot of fun playing with that team this year because the Hornets are a super, super fun team. I've enjoyed watching them almost more than anybody this year. LaMelo is an absolute basketball savant. I, I, I can't say it enough. I, I don't want to well, go too deep into it because Warriors fans are going to get mad at me for keep talking about LaMelo instead of Wiseman. But that dude is – he has a chance to be an MVP candidate if the scoring ever comes around just at like 20 points per game. Well, and I have a problem with uh, the comments from the head coach. What's his name? Borrego. Yeah. When he was like saying like, oh, I can't have a guy in my starting lineup that's having all these turnovers. And where I would disagree with that is like, like people are thinking too much about what the assist stat means as opposed to the, the difference between the specific types of assists. So like, like we were talking about earlier out of the post, when you make an aggressive play, an aggressive play has a has a much different risk to reward than a simple swing around the perimeter or uh, or different types of assist plays. Like you know, like uh, James Harden just like throwing swing passes around the court that are leading to a guy taking a twenty six foot three, and he's doing that forty times a game, and the guy makes seven of them. So there's seven assists on his total in in plays that aren't necessarily like you know, super high quality shot attempts. That's not the same to me as LaMelo Ball making a super aggressive pass that if completed leads to a dunk. You know what I mean? Like that to me is a huge difference. And to Brago's point, it's like you got to think of, you know, his assist to turnover ratio is different than an assist to turnover ratio for a James Harden type of guy because uh, LaMelo is a super aggressive passer and most of his assists are literally for dunks. So, like, if you have six assists and four turnovers, that that it's as good as getting sixty percent offense in, in his particular role because he's just getting dunks. Like, there he's literally creating like hundred uh, percent offensive plays with his assists. 
He's averaging 6.1 assists and two and a half turnovers a game right now. His That's assist to turnover ratio, his assist to turnover ratio is fine, especially for a 19 year old rookie who really isn't physically developed yet. He, he's getting by on guile and skill. Like mm-hmm. he's not overpowering anybody. Everything he's doing is a means of his basketball IQ. And then obviously his skill level, which is super, super high. I'm not sure if I've ever seen, at least in my lifetime, a 19 year old who's more just gifted with the basketball in his hands, right? Mm-hmm. Every pass, every dribble, he, he can shoot from a bunch of different platforms, even though the shot's kind of funky. Um, he's got a chance to be super, super special, man. That, that kid is unbelievable. Well, and Tommy and I, before the show, we were talking about like coaching and like in the, the culture that surrounds coaching, particularly with older guys. So Tommy went to go coach at uh, what school was it again? Metro State in Denver, Division two school. So he went to go coach at a division school two school in Denver and he was in the business for a little while and then he, he gave up on it. And I have friends of mine that I played with in college that have gone to try to coach. I, I have a coach friend of mine that was an assistant when I was in Utah who frequently reaches out to me and, and just kind of vents about the industry. And it's hard. It's really, really hard because these, these guys, these guys, that the, the head coach position is naturally such a stubborn position because guys are so like stuck in their ways. And, you know, I, I, I can just imagine that, that Borrego, he's looking at the situation and for whatever reason, he doesn't particularly like playing LaMelo probably because he prefers playing a more traditional guard. And uh, 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 he's probably under some pressure from the GM and the owner to play LaMelo. And it's kind of how he's coping with it. Cause I, I cannot for the life of me think of a good reason for him to say what he did about LaMelo. That just seemed like so foolish to me and, and aggressive and weird. It was a strange comment, especially for a rookie who's been pretty spectacular so far this year, but to Borrego's credit, I think Devonte Graham has shown tremendous development under him, even though Graham has struggled a little bit this year. Malik he was Monk, awesome last year, though. Yeah, yeah, he was awesome last year in Borrego's first year. Malik Monk, it looks like a different player this year. Um, I've been waiting on that forever. I've always been a Malik Monk fan. And then, I mean, he was critical of LaMelo, but LaMelo's look great. I think he's doing a great job of putting LaMelo in spots where he can succeed. So, yeah, it, I think it might have been a contact or a, a comment that got taken a little bit out of context. Uh, but yeah, it, it was weird either way. I don't, I don't see what the point of it was, especially when he's been as good as he has. And one of my biggest pet peeves, and I always talk to you about this, is like commit to commit to an era, you know, commit to a, a, a timeline. And like if your goal is to have Mellow Ball be your point guard of the future, having him come off the bench and play in like a secondary or tertiary role t- doesn't make any sense to me. Like unless you think you can win the championship this year, which I don't think they can, you've got you've to at least develop him. Like you, you can – He's, he's such a willing passer. He moves. He's, he's a, there's, he's like a, an initiating passer instead of like a reactionary passer, meaning like he's not, he's not that guy that's going to bring the ball to the floor, dribble 17 times. And when the defense collapses on him, he's going to throw a pass. He's the guy who like actively, the minute he catches the ball is looking for openings and looking to push the ball up the floor. That, that guy naturally will fit with Gordon Hayward. That guy naturally will fit with Miles Bridges and these other uh, offensive players on the team. So I, I would start him, but I, I, we've gotten off the beaten path a little bit, but, uh, Anyway, the bottom line, though, so you, I, had, I had LeBron over Embiid. You had Embiid over LeBron. I had Kawhi over Jokic. You had Jokic. Did you have Kawhi fourth? Yeah, I would have Kawhi fourth. Just yeah. like you, all the stuff you pointed to, he's been absolutely tremendous his last 12 or so games. I want to say it was those first five that were really bad, and he's played 17 total. So the last 12 games, he's been incredibly good. Um, yeah, he's just, he's just a tremendous player. He, he's awesome, man. I, 
I complain about him time to time because the foul hunting does get a little bit annoying, but he's incredible. If he keeps up these percentages, he's going to have one of the better 25 plus point per games offensive season, offensive seasons ever. So he's been incredible. And, and uh, I actually joked about this with, with uh, 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 Samus Fondiari a couple weeks ago, but like him, him and Kawhi, uh, Paul George having great seasons was the most predictable thing ever. I really, really do believe that when guys are embarrassed, it brings the best out of them. I frequently talk about how I think, uh, uh, how I think LeBron, that 2011 meltdown was like the best thing that ever happened to him because it made him embrace uh, elements of his game that he never embraced before because he leaned so heavily on his athleticism. And it made him uh, get to the point where he was talented enough to dominate the next, the next decade. He doesn't dominate the next decade if he wins in 2011, in my opinion. And so from that standpoint, like I, I, I it was it was predictable to me that you know, Kawhi and Paul George had a really, really embarrassing, like nightmare of an exit. And you don't just go home and sit on your couch after that. It, it, it eats at you and it, and it brings something special out of you. And I don't think it's a, a, a I don't think it's a, a shock to me that they're playing well. That said, like I said, you know, I think you and I both agree that they're, they're, they still lack just a little bit of a high IQ ball handler to help them uh, manage like tight moments in a playoff series when isolation shots aren't going. I'd still try to kind of swing for the fences with a Lowry move. They have the contracts to make it work. It would be a little bit complicated, or they can make it a three-team deal. I would try to get Lowry, especially because we know the Lowry and Kawhi thing works. Like, they literally won a championship together. I think it'd be a very easy move. Lowry's on the last year of his contract. Toronto might be looking to tank in one way or another. Uh, they don't seem like they're ready to win in any shape or fashion. Lowry doesn't fit their timeline at all, especially with a lot of the young guys they have. I would try to – if I'm the Clippers, I'm doing – almost everything I can to get Lowry at the deadline. Because I think if they get him, now I would actually be a lot more unsure of who's coming out of the Western Conference. Because right now I still have the Lakers by a healthy margin. I don't see any team in the West taking them no more than six games. And I think even that might be being a little bit generous. Mm -hmm. But if the Clippers get Lowry, I think that would be an absolute dogfight of a series. I'm worried about them having the assets to give him up. Uh, Like I, I, and and Toronto fans are extremely attached to Kyle Lowry. Um, I, I I tweeted out like a fake trade the other day with like Kyrie for, uh, for Lowry and OG Ananobi, which I thought would make both teams better. And there were a lot of, (laughs) there, there were a lot of Toronto fans that were like, hell no, man. Like we're not giving up Lowry. We'd rather have Lowry than Kyrie, which is insanity. Obviously. I mean, Kyrie, uh, Lowry may be a better overall basketball player when you factor in his leadership and availability and all those things, but there's a ceiling to what you could do with Lowry and and Kyrie had a, a, an ability to raise that ceiling and uh, I but like Toronto fans wouldn't have it so for whatever reason they don't uh, seem to be open to that idea. Lowry's their guy, man. He went through all the playoff failures with him. He stuck with him and then he brought him a championship. You know, and he was tremendous in those finals. His game six um, to win those 2019 finals, I think, is probably one of the more underrated. Uh, finals performances really ever by like a second star he was just absurdly good in that game he, he mm-hmm. came out and he absolutely set the tone he scored like 12 in that first quarter and was just so steady that entire series really and that's a guy who really had some massive playoff failures like at some point in his playoff career was like walking off the floor because he couldn't handle the pressure of the situation <laughs> and it, it was the, I, I'll never forget that that was one of the craziest things I've ever seen in an NBA game and then he totally People love an underdog story, man. Nobody expected that from Kyle Lowry. And then he turned in, he was the second best player on a title team. So I, I totally get the attachment. 
So uh, I'm going to give my number five because it's something that I think is uh, I feel pretty passionately about after digging into the numbers. And I'm pretty sure you probably disagree with me, but we'll see what, what you end up thinking. So uh, um, I'm a big believer in rewarding team success. success. And when you look at uh, the teams at the top of the league, the Utah Jazz right now are a half game out of first place. Um, and when you really dig into the numbers of that team, you you know, your, your initial instinct, your like casual perspective may tell you, Oh, like it's Donovan Mitchell. He's the best player on the team. Um, but I think Mike Conley is the, is my pick for number fifth on the MVP, uh, ballot right now for a couple of reasons. For starters, when I read you some of these numbers, you're literally going to be blown away. So first of all, he's averaging 25 and seven per 36 minutes. That's pretty good. It's not quite like what a Steph in 2015 type of low statistical output MVP type of season was, but it's pretty damn good. Uh, 44% from the field, 41% from three, 80% from the line. The uh, He has the second highest usage rate in their starting lineup. So for all of their heavy minutes, guys, he's second in their usage right behind Donovan Mitchell. The, the, the Jazz are plus 18.2 per 100 possessions when he's on the floor. They are minus 10.4 when he is off the floor. So they, there's literally a 28-point swing between when he's on the floor and when he's off the floor. He's got the best defensive rating of all of their rotation players at 98.6. He's probably not the best defender on the team, but he's doing really well in his minutes. Um, and if, when you and this kind of goes with when you talk to jazz fans, if you talk to jazz fans about what they've liked from Utah this year, they will tell you that Mike Conley has been the steadying presence for them, the most consistent player on the team. So my 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 question for you is, does being a 20 point guy per 36 minutes who has these dramatically amazing uh, uh, net rating uh, effect and is the second best usage on the team for a team that's a half game out of best record in the league, is that enough to put you in the MVP conversation in your opinion? Hmm. And if not, a, would you put some other somebody else on the Jazz in there? Because I feel like somebody on the Jazz needs to be in there. Yeah, I mean, you're not wrong. Um, somebody should be in there. They've been tremendous this year. It feels like more of a team thing where they're just like – I know as of a couple games ago when they, they absolutely – walloped the Warriors by like 40 points and it was like 20 in the first quarter they are they are shooting threes at a clip and making threes at a clip that has literally never been seen so it feels like a team thing but what I would say is there probably is kind of a dearth of a fifth candidate there unless you want to say Kevin Durant just based on pure statistical output Um, there obviously are some team issues there that I well while you can blame him for some of the defensive struggles a lot of that isn't him. It's roster construction and um, how Brooklyn has decided to go about their business, which isn't entirely on him. So maybe some of it is, but he has been They're the worst defense ever, Tommy. I, the worst I, I know. Ever. I, I know that. I know that. But he's also averaging 30 points a game on like 52, 45, 80 something shooting. Like he is having if this maintains, it might be like the best 30 point per game season ever. Like at some point you have to award that just from a pure statistical output standpoint. And I get it. I know they're the worst defense ever. I understand that, that we talked about, we, we knew that was going to be a thing. Anybody with a working brain knew that was going to be a thing. We knew they were going to be terrible on defense, but while he could be better, I don't think most of that is on him. I think it's Brooklyn not having any type of defensive personnel to stop NBA level offenses. So, but 
Well, but, so Kevin Durant's case would be like you're you're talking like Russ 2017 case, like just sure monster monster numbers. But the difference is, is he's with James Harden and Kyrie Irving. I think you'd have a really hard time convincing people that you know having like moderate to to below average because they they're they're like plus one or plus two points per 100 possessions with this uh, since the Harden Harden trade. They've been not bad because they've. They've won games on the fact that they've played some bad teams, but like they've 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 been underwhelming with a whole lot of talent. And at a certain point, like I think that might disqualify you from this conversation. I mean, what do you think? Uh, entirely fair, but Durant was doing the same thing before the Harden trade. He was putting up the same type of numbers. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't think there has been no tangible difference in his performance at all. I, I see what you're saying because the defense is so bad that you almost can't reward it, but. Yeah, I, I just think there's not really a fifth candidate right now. That, that ask, would be my take. Let me ask you this. If I swapped Anthony Davis and Kevin Durant, so it was Kyrie Irving, James Harden, and Anthony Davis, would the Brooklyn Nets be a better team? Yes. Plain and simple. They would and, so, and so my, my concern is like what I've said to you a half dozen times since you and I have started doing podcasts together. You know, there is an easy fix to the Brooklyn Nets problem. It's their mobile seven-footer with arms that literally go forever embracing the defensive end of the ball. That, that's literally the difference between them being this laughing stock of a team that's trying to outscore teams 145 to 143 and them, uh, and them being the team that could win the NBA championship. That's the difference. And, like, and to me, like, this is the exact same reason why before the season, you know, you and I had Kevin Durant lower on our lists, you know, even factoring in health. And, and I think it's just like, you know, if, if, if I, we all predicted, you know, definitively that this team would struggle to uh, like a historical extent on the defensive end of the ball, that to me is 100% because we know KD wants no parts of that type of defensive workload. And to me, that 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 says everything you need to know, because like I told you, we are, and like you said, we would expect Anthony Davis to erase a whole lot of their mistakes and to make that team into something worth, you know, something that could be potentially dangerous. And to me, that says that to me, that defines, you know, a lot of the Kevin Durant experience is like he is literally capable of fixing everything wrong with this team. And I just don't think he wants to. Fair, but in theory, I think we would want AD to do that. But we've seen in New Orleans that if the defensive personnel is bad, he hasn't really lifted the floor of a bad defensive team. Like a lot of those years in New Orleans, and maybe it was a motivation factor. He didn't want to play hard because his team sucked. But they they would have like a defensive rating in the 20s, even when he was on the floor. So the defensive problems in Brooklyn go much farther than Kevin Durant. He is a problem, right? But I think they are so bad, they don't have... They have basically one guy who can guard the ball on the perimeter in Bruce Brown. Kyrie doesn't want to. James Harden doesn't want to. Joe Harris can't. What is KD supposed to do? He can't erase every single problem at the rim, right? You can only do so much if you can't get stops at point of attack. We've seen that time and time again. Like, I, I think point of attack defense is overrated to a certain extent when people look at awards ballots and awarding guys like maybe an Avery Bradley. But at the, uh, at the same time, if you don't have that, you have no chance of getting stops. 
right? If you can't guard to the point of attack, you will not get stops, period, end of story. It doesn't matter who's on the backside of the defense, right? We, we saw that last year. The Warriors were an awful team last year, but they couldn't get stops to the point of attack. And it didn't matter that Draymond Green was back there because he was covering so many mistakes that they were still bottom five in defensive rating. So I, I maybe if KD was more motivated, they'd be 22nd in defense instead of all-time bad. But 22nd might be enough to make them a contender, and that's my point. Is like, And for the record, like LeBron got Kyrie to defend. That stuff goes from the top down. You know, like there's no doubt in my mind that if Kevin Durant truly embraced what that meant to be the anchor of their defense vocally and with what he does with his body, he he, he could make James Harden and, and Kyrie Irving and them at least defend at a that that number 20 in the league type of level. Literally, if they could get there, they could be dangerous. Right now, they're not dangerous. Like, I, I think the Clippers are going to have their way with them tonight. Lou Williams might have 50, like, because their, their backcourt is so porous defensively. Like, they're, they're going to have a whole lot of trouble uh, with any decent team right now because of how bad they are. And that, to me, could be fixed by Kevin Durant. All I'm saying, look, and I'm not saying it's all his fault. I agree with you. But we talked about earlier when we were talking about it with Embiid being nitpicky. When you want to be considered one of the best players in the league, these are the kinds of things we're going to be nitpicky about. You know, LeBron is considered the best player in the world by most people right now. I don't think it's a coincidence that he started defending again last year when he wasn't defending as much. There were a lot of people out there saying LeBron's not the best two-way player in the league anymore. Kawhi might be better than him now. This kind of stuff is the nitpicky stuff that differentiates between the top players in the league. And all I'm saying is I've got people in my mentions every day telling me KD's better than LeBron. I've got the usual suspects on Twitter preaching about it every day. But for some reason, he's not held to the same standard that Giannis is held to, that LeBron is held to, that Joel Embiid is held to, because he's so pretty when, with what he's doing off the dribble. And, dude, like, I love it, too. As a basketball fan, when I go to the court, I'm practicing what KD does, not what LeBron does. That's not the same as being a better basketball player. And, and that's, the, that's the thing that I wish that we could delineate here because, like, like it literally it, – it, it's not his fault. But if I dropped LeBron into that scenario, he's trying to fix the defensive culture on that team, and I'm not sure that Kevin Durant is. Are we sure LeBron's trying to do that? We've yeah. seen him. I think I – think the, la- the last two years in Cleveland tell you that he's trying to do that? Okay, so two out of the past 15 years, he had bad defensive seasons, and you're going to define his career like that? I'm not defining his career like that. What I'm saying is, as he's gotten older, and he has less energy for crap, and he has bad defensive personnel, he hasn't tried on that end. When he got to L.A., he tried again because they actually had good defensive personnel. That's what Kevin Durant is a smart enough guy to realize we don't have anybody that can guard. We don't have anybody that can. I think a lot of guys on that Laker team were considered bad defenders before LeBron got there with AD. Uh, Like Avery Bradley was considered completely washed. Rondo was considered washed. A lot of these guys weren't. Kuzma was a god awful defensive player. You know, Dwight Howard was considered washed. JaVale McGee like is is flawed. I, I guess what I'm saying is is like. You know, also with LeBron, a couple things. First of all, when he was in those those bad defensive seasons, one of the important details is I truly think LeBron thought he couldn't win, and I think that I think that he, and this is a flaw in his game. For the record, I think he embraced the fact that he couldn't win, and so he wanted to put unbelievably monster offensive numbers up and crazy highlights to try to like maintain some like mystique about how good he is. 
because he knew he was going to lose to the Warriors. I honestly think that's the way it was. I don't think it's a coincidence that his efficiency was like super high those two seasons that he didn't defend. It's like the Lakers are the number one defense in the league right now, but they're like seventh in offense. It's because defense is tiring and it wears you out. It's extremely rare to see a team who's like the number one defense and the number one offense because teams that are lackadaisical on that end inevitably score a million points because they got legs on the other end. You know what I mean? I hear you. I just don't – I think – Without a good fifth candidate, and and you know what, I, I do appreciate you giving Conley some props because he has been amazing this year, especially relative to last year when people were like, oh man, this dude might be washed. What a terrible trade for Utah. And now it looks like, you know what, they might have made the right decision. And I think Memphis is happy with the decision too, so I think both parties ended up winning. Um, so it, it, I think it is nice to give Conley a nod, especially a guy who has never made an all-star game, who has probably been deserving and would have made some if he was in the East at some point in his career. But I just... Durant has been so good offensively, like indescribably good offensively. Better than ever. Literally better than ever coming off an Achilles. So I I can't not reward that. He's been that good offensively. Like if he had just been even a little bit worse offensively, if he was just having one of his normal offensive seasons, like 26, 5, and 5 on 50% shooting, 35% from 3, and 85% from the line, I wouldn't have him there. But he's been – so good offensively that you can't deny it. They're, Brooklyn's problems don't start with Durant. They start with the roster construction. Like, it's it's not his fault they constructed the roster in that way. And maybe, I mean, maybe some of the Harden trade is his fault. But his on-court play has been enough to, at least, I would vote for the guy. You know? And, I yeah, for the maybe, record, there, there's kind of a history if, of... If they're of, still 500 at the end of the year, I probably wouldn't. But I think they're going to figure some things out. There's a history of, of MVP voters punishing guys who relax on the defensive end and put up monster numbers. The, 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 uh, the Cavs in 2017 were 51 and 31, so better than the, the, the Nets are on pace for right now, I'm pretty sure. Um, I'll have to look at the standings. I can't remember, but I think the, the Cavs were a little bit better in the standings. And LeBron had just an unbelievable offensive season, and he finished fourth in the MVP voting. And so uh, that season. And so I guess the idea is, is like, you know, uh, I would imagine over the course of the season, they'll win enough games that it, that he'll end up getting votes. And for the record, Mike Conley's not going to get a, a, a top five MVP finish. I'm just saying like, there's, there's a case for him to deserve it. And it's him being the arguably the best player on, on arguably the best team in the league right now in terms of the standings. Cause they're only half came out and my God, those, those net rating numbers are just absolutely absurd. That's, uh, yeah, that, that's, just, that's Steph Curry, 2014, 2015, 16 levels, where it's like plus 20 net rating, which is like impossible almost. Yeah, it's it's insane. And 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 as far as the KD stuff goes, I'm just venting because like I just I, – it's, it's crazy because a lot of times I get portrayed as a KD hater. And like I literally I, – I love KD's game. I, I, I'm terrified of him every time he goes up for a shot when I'm rooting against him. I have the utmost confidence in his ability. I just, if it bothers me that he is held to like a completely different standard than his peers, like it, in, in almost every way. That's, that's why, why I ha- that's why I have him fifth. No. He's fifth. On, he's fifth on my list. He's not first. I wouldn't, I, he has no argument for any of the above any of the top four guys. He doesn't. But I think after those, I put him four, over AD because AD's been pretty bad this season. Yeah, no, I'm just saying purely um, MVP. Oh, MVP, right? yeah, 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 just purely MVP. I don't see a good fifth candidate, right? Like Giannis hasn't been 
Is there anybody we're missing other than Conley and Durant? Uh, No, because the season's been weird and Harden, who's almost always on these lists, is not. Um, Let me uh, really quickly, before we call it a day, let me pull up uh, just a a ranking so we can see if there's anybody we missed. So this is just basketball reference. So these are based almost purely on stats. But Jokic and Bede, Kawhi, LeBron, Durant, Giannis. Uh, uh, The weird thing with Giannis is the defense has fallen off of a cliff. Um, he's putting up incredibly monster numbers as is always the case, but I think the, I think public confidence with him is at an all time low. And I think that's, what's destroying him. Uh, Anthony Davis, I don't think has any legitimate case. I think he's, he's only averaging like 22 points a game. His defense has fallen off a cliff, although he's had a couple of monster defensive games. Uh, Paul George, we talked about earlier, uh, Damian Lillard, the, the, the Blazers are only 10 and nine. And then the other name on the list is Rudy Gobert, but I, I couldn't in my right mind vote for Rudy Gobert. <laughs> Never in a million years. Um, th- the one guy who I think might put his name in the, uh, in the race after a while is Steph Curry. He's looked a lot – he struggled with consistency this year, and this is coming from a guy who's watched 90% of Warriors games so far. He has struggled to be consistent, but the last 10 games, his splits are back to where they normally are. He's back at 46% from the field for the year, 41 from three after a horrendous start, 92 from the line, averaging 28 points a game. If the team's success comes, he will be in the race, absolutely, because the numbers are already there. It's just a matter of can they win enough games to get his name in the race, and I think, I think they eventually will if they can ever get healthy. How do you feel about that team right now? Um, they are fourth in defensive rating since Draymond Green has returned. Really? So, yep. So in the fifth, 14 or 15 games he's played, they're fourth in defensive rating. Um, I would feel a lot better if they had a couple more big men on the roster. Um, I would like for them to move Ubre for Alonzo. I think that would be a fantastic move for actually both parties because it seems like New Orleans doesn't want to extend Lonzo at the, at the number he's going to command. And Uber is an expiring contract, and I think the Warriors would love one, love Lonzo. He would fit in so many ways. He fits that Sean Livingston, Andre Iguodala, play connector, great defender, smart, high IQ player um, that they crave in their system. I'm, it's still all TBD just because, like I said, Steph hasn't been consistent enough yet. If he finds that normal level of consistency, I think they'll end up winning 40 games probably, for, and then they'll be they'll be a team that – People probably don't want to see in the playoffs unless your name starts with an L.A. Right? I, I, I still feel the same about them in terms of eventual playoff ceiling. Nobody scares me besides the L.A. teams just because of, of who Steph can be in a playoff series, which is better than 99.999% of the league. Well, I said this before and uh, uh, to you, and, and, I, and it's been really interesting to see this, how this has gone. I saw, the, I saw two potential scenarios for Steph Curry this year uh, in the Warriors. I saw 2019 Lakers or 2018 Cavs, and I thought it entirely depended on health. Um, I thought that the difference between the, the 2019 Lakers making a deep playoff run and them not was health, not just for LeBron, but for the whole team. And in 2018, LeBron played every single game, and, is, and, and it's been super impressive to see Steph Curry embrace that this year. Because I think in the past, he's had the flexibility when he's a little banged up to sit out. And that's, that hasn't been the case this year. And to his credit, he's embraced that. He's played every single uh, uh, minute that his team has needed him to play. 
And uh, uh, for the record, I 100% agree with you in terms of that playoff run. I, I've said on, on many occasions that I thought that the 2018 Cavs would have beat that Rockets team um, just because I, I trust LeBron's ability to solve that defense. And, and for the same reason you trust Steph in a lot of these playoff matchups, I just felt like if when push came to shove, that team would figure out a way to defend at a, at a high enough level to where LeBron could carry them over the top offensively. That's the way I feel about uh, about Steph Curry. However, I do think there are so many good teams this year that a, a team like Philly, I think, would give Golden State problems, and a team like uh, Brooklyn would give them problems. Uh, you know, a team like Boston would give them problems. Teams that w- could really, really defend at a super high level and and physically wear down um, uh, Golden State. But I, I, in the Western Conference, though, a lot of those teams are really finesse, and and Steph is just going to out finesse you. And to your point, they're, they're defending at a high level. So, yeah, I would, I would, I would pick them. Like that's the ironic part about about playing Steph every game to try to fight for the standings. Is you know if they get up there where they're somehow in that you know like six seed, and and they have a gap between six and seven, I would rest him a little bit because as long as you can avoid those LA teams in the first round, I really think that uh, Steph's health needs to be become a priority at some point. Absolutely. No, I mean, my feelings haven't changed that much. I thought they were really going to struggle through 20 games. They honestly have a better record than I thought they would. I thought they'd probably be under 500 at this point of the season, but they're 11 and nine. They've stolen some wins, as I've said before. Now it's, can they put together consistent performances? Because some nights they'll look awesome. They beat the Spurs by like 30. They just crushed Detroit, who for the record, they've been playing teams really tough. They gave the Lakers, they beat the Lakers a couple of games ago. Like they, mm-hmm. they are a team that... Yeah, they play teams really tough, and the, the Warriors absolutely walloped them on Saturday. So they have some really impressive wins, but they also have some terrible losses. They're just they're an inconsistent team with a lot of young guys. And I yeah. think if if they find they have so many bad center minutes at this point, their center rotation might be the worst in the entire league. And the Ubre minutes have just been absolutely killer. He, he's been he's having the worst season of his career by like a, a wide margin. He's been a little bit better lately. But if they can just find a way to shore up some of those minutes, I think they're they're still going to be a dangerous playoff team just because Steph Curry is Steph Curry. He's still one of the three best offensive players in the league and one of the greatest offensive players of all time. I'd be more scared of them than I would be of Denver if I was a Laker fan. So I 100 percent agree with you. All right, man. Well, um, I feel like we hit on everything that we wanted to, to, uh, to touch on. Um, we'll have to come up with a couple of uh, uh, more obscure teams that we can touch on next week to kind of keep with the theme of things. Um, but thank you to everybody who tuned in. Uh, this will be up in podcast format, the entirety of it here, probably in about 20 minutes. But as usual, I appreciate your guys' support. And Tommy, I'll see you next week, man. Sounds good, man. See you. All right. See you. Bye.